0: in your bulletin, it is printed there as well, to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13. And uh, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to give just a little bit m- more of an introduction uh, as, by way of background for our text this morning uh, than, than I normally would, uh, as, as most of you are probably aware. We've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, uh, slowly but surely, uh, for, for quite some time now. Uh, just really uh, uh, digesting it and uh, taking our time to, to enjoy it. Uh, and as, as we come into this last chapter, uh, a lot of commentators on, on the book of Hebrews see a significant shift happening uh, as, as we come into this, this uh, last chapter. And they see it uh, in it a lot of familiar things, uh, some things that are common to a lot of New Testament epistles, uh, as as a, a lot of those books will kind of start the final chapter, you see them uh, kind of turn from their their main course of arguments, I maybe mean, the, the, the main topics they 've been talking about, and just kind of deal rapid fire with a bunch of other issues. Uh, you, you may have noticed this before right you, so you, you see maybe a lot of just like several brief commands right at the end uh, that's, which don 't necessarily seem directly related to what 's been talked about throughout most of the book, right? It's uh, yeah, not to say, I mean, they're, they're still consistent broadly with the gospel, right, and, and with those main points as well. They're just kind of like different subjects within the same broader field, right? Kind of, kind of like that. And a lot of commentators see the same thing happening uh, here in Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. But the very best commentators, the ones that agree with me, uh, see uh, uh, see a little bit more continuity at work here. Uh, And of course, they're not not just best because they agree with me, they tend to be better because they put in the textual work uh, to to ask and answer those uh, questions about why we might perceive a shift here, right? is, Is it because... Uh, there, you know, there may be, this may be a later edition tacked on by the author or by someone else entirely. You know, we, we've talked about how this uh, book was originally most likely delivered as a sermon and, and it was later written down. Maybe it was added later when it was written down, that kind of thing. Um, and so they, they, they get into the nitty-gritty, the, the vocabulary choice, the syntax, all of those things um, that, that make language scholars really excited and, and really bore the rest of us. But what they found... Uh, is that uh, of the thousands and thousands of New Testament manuscripts, not one shows any evidence that these verses uh, are later editions or, or should be considered later editions, uh, that the language choice and the, the use of the Old Testament is consistent with the same author we've had throughout the first 12 chapters. Uh, the benediction at the end of the chapter is certainly consistent with that original format of, of being originally delivered as a sermon right uh, in fact uh this the middle section of uh, of the text verses uh 7 through 15 or so uh, kind of in there um is it, it's abundantly clear in that section even to many of the the commentators who don't put in the same amount of of work into the text right uh, that, that, that line of, of argumentation right there in the center of the chapter is a, is a faithful and consistent conclusion to the arguments made over the course of the entire book. Uh, not something that was, you know, we should think is added on later by someone else, but, but something we have every reason to believe is original. Uh, and it's on either end of that section that we find verse 7 on, on, on the front end which seems to go thematically more with the third section of chapter 13, and verse 16, which seems to go thematically more with this first section. Uh, That's why you see it included there in your bulletin. That's why we'll read it this morning. It's it's almost like those two verses were switched at some point. Uh, But again, They go back, you know, they do the textual work of the thousands and thousands of manuscripts we have. Not one of them suggests any evidence that these verses were ever in a different place than they are now, which actually then becomes really just another ringing endorsement of both the authenticity, but also the carefully planned nature of this text, Uh, the the author seemed to want to to highlight that middle section as very important. It's the logical conclusion to the whole book, as it were. So so he kind of set it aside with these out-of-place verses. Now, since we're taking the text more slowly rather than all at once, uh, we can slow down. We can take the time to to separate and look at these different sections one by one. So it's probably going to make more sense for us to Kind of unswitch those verses as it were, uh, you know, deal deal with them where they fit more thematically. Uh, that's why we're looking at verse sixteen this morning. But we can we can see that that beautiful purpose that they serve to draw our attention to the importance of verses eight through fifteen, which we'll look at next time. We're in the book of Hebrews, so that's a little bit of extra introduction this morning. Why we're taking a verse from you know two-thirds of the way into the chapter and adding it on to this first bit here. But uh, for now, I invite you to turn with me to the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6 and verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the living God. Would you bow your heads with me once more? Our Lord, our God, we thank you, as always, thank you for your word. And we thank you for the beauty of it and the goodness of it that reflects your beauty and your goodness because it comes from you and it communicates to us who you are and the good purposes that you have for us. And we pray this morning as we uh, dig into your word some more that you, that you would help us to listen well to your word this morning and to respond with worship and with love. Amen. All right, well, since we had uh, a bit of a longer introduction this morning, I'm going to go ahead and get right into it because there is a lot of really good stuff in here, uh, and uh, I don't want to waste any time. Okay, so as uh, we saw already, as, as we just read, right, this passage is a series of ethical commands, uh, but they don't come out of nowhere right? They come out of everything we've read so far in the book of Hebrews. And uh, as we've seen now uh, over and and over again in the book of Hebrews, how Jesus is better, right? That's, That's like theme number one. Jesus is better than anything else we could put our hope and our trust in for life or death or after death, whether on earth or in heaven or anywhere else. Jesus is better. Jesus is best. He's number one. He's he's both God and man, and he bridges the gap between God and man that we've made by our sin and our rebellion against him. He's the only one who never sinned and who positively did everything necessary to earn God's eternal favor, yet he willingly sacrificed himself and died in order to pay uh, uh, the penalty that we deserve for our sins. He died in our place, and He gives us instead that eternal reward that He alone has earned. Then He rose from the dead, proving that Jesus is the only one who can endure beyond the grave and provide that perfect, lasting sacrifice that we absolutely need to be reunited with God. Uh, but, But we also see in the book of Hebrews, how Jesus is a sympathetic and compassionate friend who knows our struggles, who knows them personally, who's gone through them himself, who he, he's experienced the ex- all the kinds of things that we go through as well. And so he can relate to us with understanding and with grace. And because Jesus is the only one worthy of our trust in life and in death, we've been exhorted now to put our faith and our trust and our hope in him and to endure in following him no matter what. That's uh, as the major themes that we've seen all throughout the book of Hebrews. And in, in the last section of chapter 12, uh, we were just reminded that, that Jesus alone brings us all the way out of this world of sin and misery and brings us into the very joy of heaven itself, okay? By his perfect life and by his sacrificial death in our place. And then, uh, and then uh, the author finishes off Uh, chapter 12, with these words to remind us of our proper response to Jesus' immeasurable gift. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And you might say, if you're looking closely at the text, you might ask, Thus, let us offer acceptable worship? How? What what, what is the thus referring to? Chapter 13 is our answer. I mean, obviously, there's there's the thankfulness, the reverence, and awe mentioned in the verse itself, but grammatically, that's not sufficient to answer the question. It's what comes next in chapter 13 that ultimately answers it. We offer to God acceptable worship in the first part of chapter 13 by our love, by our love. We see that... right from the beginning. Uh, And that love is spelled out in these verses in a number of ways. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, hospitality to strangers, serving those in prison and those who are mistreated, loving your spouses and the married couples around us, and loving the Lord and our neighbors more than we love money or anything else that will pass away with this world. Those are just a few of the ways that we're called to worship and love the Lord our God. And interestingly, it's, it's also what God himself uses to build and strengthen his kingdom and our community in it, in the church. So we'll mostly follow the basic flow of the text this morning, kind of go through each of these verses, these, these commands in turn, spending tragically too little time on each of them, uh, but the main theme here, as, as we've already seen and as we'll continue to see, is love. Displayed in many different ways to many different people. And that shouldn't be surprising to us, right? If, if we're students of Scripture, the Lord himself reminds us over and over and over again the importance of love. Loving God, loving our neighbors, loving one another, loving our enemies even, In fact, when when Jesus was getting ready to leave his disciples by death on the night when he was arrested, he gave them one clear command. We saw it earlier in our call to confession. He said, this is my commandment that you love. John 15, 12, and and the author of Hebrews is, he's getting ready to bring this sermon to a conclusion after he's just said, uh, you know, a few verses before this that we must see to it that we don't refuse him who is speaking, that is, Jesus still, right? He says essentially the same thing. Let brotherly love continue. He goes to the same place as Jesus. or Another way to, to translate that, if you have a different translation, yours might say something like, go on. Loving one another, in verse one. the The point is, it's it's not a one time command uh, to just love our sisters and brothers in Christ. Do it, check off the list, move on. No, it's a continuous command. Right? We always are to be showing love to one another. Uh, it'll this will work out, you know, in our homes, in prisons, in our finances, in everything. Now. Uh, that, uh, that does, of course, mean that, you know, we have to be interacting with one another outside of Sunday mornings in order to do this, right? But Jesus said that's the mark of a true Christian, didn't he? We can wear crosses, we can recite creeds, we can paint our walls both physically in our houses or, you know, virtually on our profiles with scripture verses. We can we can do all kinds of things to, to proclaim that we're Christians, but what sets apart true followers of Jesus, according to Jesus himself, is our love for other followers of Jesus of all kinds, right? Regardless of age, or race, or sex, or nation, or wealth, or poverty, or anything else that, uh, this world might use that, that we might find in this world to divide us, even our denomination. Right? Jesus calls us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ across those lines, not just in word or in talk, but in action and in truth. First John three, eighteen. That is tangibly. And that means among many other things, most of them positive things that we do for each other, that we don't make it a habit of tearing one another down, right? We don't want to tear one another down. We can disagree, of course, as brothers and sisters. It uh, doesn't mean that we all have to join the same denomination. There are reasons for disagreement, and, and that, that's fine, but what we don't do is carelessly throw around labels like heretic, right, just because somebody disagrees with us. (laughs) That's a serious charge. It's one that's decided by church courts and councils, not by anybody with a social media account, okay? Christ calls us to speak truth, but he calls us to speak it in love, doesn't he? Without love, truth can cease to be true, because truth, true truth, comes from God and God is love, right? So they, they have to be mixed together or else they're not really either, right? In that heretic example, it's actually not a true assertion unless it's been decided by a church court or council, right? We, we don't get to make that call on behalf of someone else. First John 4, 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You see in those verses how our love for one another flows out of our union with God himself through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, a lot of false teachers demonstrate that what they're teaching is Isn't actually coming from God because while they might try to focus a lot on that truth, they do so without the love that God says is required. Now, does that mean anybody who says something hard without making you feel good about it is a false teacher? No, that's not what that means, right? Conviction of sin doesn't feel particularly good, but it can be a very loving thing. But when it's done to make the teacher look better and the opponent look worse, when it's done to tear down someone rather than to rescue and to bring hope, that's not from God, right? And, and true believers can, can fall prey to the temptation, you know, not to love as well as we ought to, obviously, right? It's something we have to be reminded of from Scripture, so, so of course we're not perfect in it, right? But, but pay attention not only to your own walk but also to those you're listening to. Are they characterized by love or by anger? by compassion, or by disdain for people who disagree with them. One of those comes from Jesus. The other one sounds a lot more like Satan. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. But we're not just called to love one another Within the family of God. That's verse one, and, and so much flows out from there. But as we move on to verse two, we're also show, uh, called to show concrete actions of love to complete strangers by welcoming them into our homes. Doesn't that sound great? Be honest. You know, hospitality, uh, it's a great gift, both for the giver and for the receiver. And I know that at least in theory, most of us would acknowledge that truth, uh, might at least consider having a stranger or two stay the night uh, as long as they looked presentable enough, right? It's very rare that we actually do it, but, you know, at least we say we might, so that's something, right? But at the same time, you know, if, if, uh, if you're anything like me, At uh, the end of a long day, long week, long year, sometimes you just want to go home at the end of the day and relax. You know, my my home is my castle, my fortress is to keep all those other people out. (laughs) But that's not the way of our Savior. He famously didn't have a home, but he welcomed strangers of all kinds into his group to travel along with him, and he was glad to receive the hospitality of others who were willing to house a homeless man such as himself. He also commends uh, those who are willing to help strangers with tangible help in Matthew 25, where Jesus says that in so much as we give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, Welcome in to the stranger, clothing to the naked, visit to the sick and the imprisoned, or any other tangible helps to the very least of people who could never repay our generosity. Jesus says we do those things for him. And he condemns those in in the same passage who will not practice hospitality with strangers or any other of those helps for the least of these by sending them away to eternal punishment. Now, it's not to say that we earn our, or lose our salvation by what we do, but they're evidences of whether we have the love of God in us by whether or not we show it to those around us. And I can personally attest, and I'm, I'm sure many of you can as well, that, that even wel- uh, um, <coughs> welcoming uh, true flesh and blood people, they don't have to be angels, right, like, like uh, we, we see a, a reference to here in, in this passage. Um, you know, it, it, it takes that, that idea of, uh, that, that Jesus uses of, of welcoming even himself, right, and, and, and refers to times in the Old Testament where uh, we, we see concrete examples of people who actually did uh, entertain angels unawares, right? You can think of Abraham, of Lot, of Gideon, of Manoah, and, and, and others who literally hosted people who turned out to be angelic messengers, but we don't have to expect, you know, that we might do the same in order to benefit from showing hospitality. Uh, even, even hosting real people often proves to be a greater blessing than it is a sacrifice. Uh, if you've done this, then, then you know the truth of it, right? It's, it's a means of God's grace not only to our guests, but also often to ourselves. Now, that's not always the case. And, and there's certainly evidence from the time period that this letter was written, that Christians uh, were well known for their hospitality to strangers. But as a result uh, of, of this reputation, you know, people, others outside of the Christian community, less scrupulous people, were known to take advantage of Christians' hospitality. They would stay for a very long time. They would ask for money before they leave. All all kinds of things that we actually have concrete historical records of people doing uh, in, in an effort to take advantage of the hospitality of Christians specifically. And in light of this, it was, it was probably tempting for some, maybe many Christians, to be more selective, perhaps, in their showing of hospitality, especially if they had been taken in uh, before, pardon the pun, there. But, uh, but God tells us in his word not to fall prey to that temptation. After all, everything we have, scripture says, from what stubby little pencil that we're just still trying to get the last use out of, to our very homes, right? Our, our, our houses themselves. Everything we have is a gift from God. Uh, it, it's It's not ours. Ultimately, they they belong uh, to God himself. They're on loan, as it were, right, for us to steward well according to his purposes. Uh, and that means they're for us to use, but they're not for us to hoard, right, just to, to keep to ourselves. They're for us to share, to use for ourselves, and to use for ministry and service and showing love to others. Everything that we have. And that's the idea behind verse 16. Well, shove that right in the middle there. We can't neglect to do good and to share what we have. And did you notice how there aren't any restrictions on that command? Like, share as you feel able, but you don't need to go out of your way or feel uncomfortable. Or, or, you know, like, share what you have plenty of, but you must be joking if you think you're going to touch the car. That's not to say we should be unwise, right? Or that we shouldn't consider whether we might be putting our families in danger, for example, and welcoming just anybody into our home without any questions or in against our better judgment, right? We, we still have an obligation to our family as well. You know, that's not to say that we, we throw wisdom out the window, but it is to say that this is not a comfortable command. Welcoming strangers, sharing anything we have, that's going to be a challenge for us. It's, it's, honestly, it's, it's not what most of us grew up with culturally, right? And that doesn't, that really doesn't matter when you grew up, what generation you're a part of. And in our uh, cultural context, in our country, we, we tend to value uh, private property, right? Uh, and we tend to kind of look down a little bit on, on people who talk too much about sharing the wealth, right? It's just a cultural value that we have. Uh, But Jesus has things that he affirms and things that he challenges about every culture. And as Christians, we have to recognize that he calls us to be more generous than the culture around us with our things. The second century Apology of Aristides, which was written not too long after this book would have been, maybe just a few decades, described how early Christians sacrificed in order to share what they had, how they cared for people. If you allow me to read uh, just a a quote here, it says, if they hear, that is Christians, if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs, and if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. That is, they, they pool their resources together to buy him out of prison. Uh, Continuing the quote, if there is among them a man that is poor or needy, and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. So whether it's welcoming people into their homes, which were much smaller and less equipped than ours are today or even going without food in order to provide food for someone else, or caring for those in prison, which is verse 3 of our text, so we might as well add that in as well. We see that the church has a long tradition of taking these commandments seriously, and this is only one of many, many similar accounts that we have from the early church. And And I hope, you know, that our goal as believers, as followers of Jesus today is that, you know, we want to be sure that that we don't drop the ball, right? That those who've come before us have carried so well and so far. But let's follow in those footsteps uh, with welcome for the stranger and radical generosity, sharing of anything we have for the sake of showing the love of Christ to those around us if we, if we never uh, experience that that giving or sharing to the point of being uncomfortable i, I challenge us that, that maybe we haven't really wrestled with the words of Jesus yet when he talks about it being more blessed to give than to receive cuz caring for prison uh, that's another thing that he calls us to uh, as if as if we were in prison with them, right? Verse, verse 3. Uh, that may not be very comfortable for many of us either, right? Uh, as if we were in prison with them. That is to say, showing deep empathy, maybe keeping contact regularly as if we were in prison with them, right? The verb in verse 3 that we're called to is to remember them, and that's really the trick, isn't it? Uh, it's it's hard sometimes to remember those who are out of sight, right? It's it's easy easy to remember the people we come across regularly. They're literally right in front of our eyes, right in front of our faces, but it takes special care to remember those in prison and to minister to them. It's a command that comes up more than once, multiple times in scripture. Uh, We cannot forget this important ministry in the church. Now, As I said, this isn't an easy command. Uh, and I think it's actually made a little bit harder if you look carefully at verse 3 and you see a contrast between the first two half or between the first half and the second half of the verse. We remember those in prison and also separately those who are mistreated. Right? As if to say, those in prison who deserve to be there as well as those who don't. Now, see, it's one thing to remember those who are, who are in prison or those who are persecuted for their faith, right? To remember them, to pray for them, maybe to, to write them words of encouragement, pray that they're allowed to read them, maybe to send them Bibles or, or other books if possible. But what about those who committed crimes and are being punished for them? Scripture doesn't call us to treat them differently. I mean, the, the, the state, obviously, that has a duty to punish crimes and is called to do so justly, but, but people don't lose their humanity just because they're in jail. They don't, need to, they, uh, they, they don't cease to need that encouragement and fellowship of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus didn't show love only to those with squeaky clean records, did he? He welcomed the prostitutes, the adulterers, the thieves, the white-collar criminals like tax collectors, the the rough-around-the-edges day laborers like fishermen, and even insurrectionist sympathizers like zealots, right? All of them were welcomed and loved by the Son of God himself. Now, that's a little bit outside of our comfort zone, isn't it? Now, they were called to repent, for sure, right? He didn't didn't just welcome them and say, yeah, keep doing whatever you want, right? They called them to repent, but Jesus, you know, because he loved them so much, you know, he loved them too much to let them, uh, to, to, to just leave them in their sin, but their sin didn't disqualify them from a relationship with Jesus or with anyone else in Jesus's very eclectic family because he paid the price for all of their sins. Every one of them. And if Jesus could welcome someone like Zacchaeus or Simon the zealot or that unnamed woman whom the entire town knew was immoral, right? Or if he could welcome me or if he can welcome you, then his grace is just as sufficient for that brother or that sister who's sitting in jail even if they deserve to be there. What God calls us to, he never says, will be easy, but loving him with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength is going to take all of our energy, all of our resources, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, as Jesus says, is a way of loving him. And he also reminds us in Luke 10 that our neighbors include those who you know, we actually may be tempted to despise ourselves. He says sometimes, sometimes they do a better job of neighboring even than we do. And if that's the case, then we need to repent, right? We have to repent and we need to follow Jesus better. We need to seek his help to do so. Well, verse 4, verse 4 takes us in what appears to be a slightly different direction by reminding us that we're to love our spouses. Now that sounds easy enough, doesn't it? Love your husband, love your wife. Great, I've got that one. But not just our spouses, but everyone else who is married or who might be married someday by the way that we go about pursuing relationships and using our sexuality. Because he doesn't just speak to husbands and wives here, but to all. He says, let, the marriage, uh, let marriage be held in honor among All, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God wants us to honor marriage in this text because he does. God honors marriage. Marriage, uh, as you may remember from reading the scriptures, marriage was the very first institution that he instituted among people on the earth, even before the church. There was marriage, and and over and over again in his word, marriage is the metaphor that God uses to describe his relationship with his people, the church. It's the closest relationship we have, and so it's the closest to describing the love and the commitment that he has for us and that he calls us to have for him. Uh, And it's that uh, bond of of mutually... uh, strengthening and, and, and encouraging one another. So so when he says we're to hold marriage in honor, while that, that doesn't mean that everyone has to get married, right, that's clear from elsewhere in uh, the scriptures, but, but it does mean that it would be sinful for us to say that marriage is somehow bad or wrong or harmful in itself, right, that would, that, that's something that We cannot say if we are following the word of God. Certainly, marriage can be uh, and and has been corrupted, as with with everything in this fallen world, but that doesn't mean that we throw away what God has called good and honorable. It's the same with the church, by the way, and with government, with family, really every institution that God himself has established. The Lord honors marriage, and, and so... We have to as well. And, and the specific way that he reminds us to do so here in our text this morning is by keeping the marriage bed undefiled. And he lists two ways, two ways that people defile it. Adultery, which is uh, unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant by a married person. And sexual immorality, which is a catch-all term which basically means any other use of sexuality outside of the covenant of marriage. Now, the Greek word that's that's used there is porneia, from which we get the word pornography, right, which is only one example of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. Now, we can commit porneia as unmarried people or as married people, with others or by ourselves, in actions, in words, or even in our thoughts. And this command you know, this may seem a little out of place here at first, right? So, so far, we've mostly been talking about meeting other people's tangible needs, right? Hospitality, ministry to prisoners, sharing of our worldly goods and possessions. Okay, I see how those all fit together, but how does how, do, how does this command fit with that kind of love for our neighbors? Well, I mean, aside from the fact that, that our spouses are also our neighbors, right? Worthy not just of brotherly or or sisterly love, but of a special covenant love and faithfulness that we vowed before God himself to give, but we also love our other brothers and sisters in the church by not damaging their marriages through being inappropriate with with them or with their spouse, right? Or their future marriages by being inappropriate with our unmarried brothers or sisters, Uh, or our own potential marriages by thinking inappropriately about others if we are single. Because uh, whether we ever marry or not, adding a sexual dynamic to a relationship, even if it's only in our minds, that drastically affects not only that relationship, but ultimately all of our relationships. It it really shifts the dynamic because uh, our sexuality is a powerful gift that God has given to his people to use in one context alone, and that's the covenant of marriage as he defines it, right? But God being the one who uh, established marriage himself in the garden before people fell into sin, he's the one who defines marriage, not us. Uh, but, uh, but, but sex is, is such a, a powerful gift, uh, you know, we call the, uh, the wedding night, Right? we call the wedding night when the husband and wife come together for the first time and, and physically the two become one flesh we call that the consummation of the marriage the point to which everything else had been pointing not not uh, you know like the only end goal that but but the, the, the confirmation, the, the finalization of the marriage covenant when not only their love, their, their emotions, their uh, devotion, their words, their, their finances, their very names, and, and every other part of their lives are shared, but, but then even their very bodies given freely to one another in a beautiful picture of enraptured and selfless love. Within marriage, God... Uh, God calls this a a, a beautiful and, and powerful uh, covenant renewal ceremony, almost as it were right he, so he he commands us to use this gift of sex with frequency and gusto within the marriage covenant, not to withhold it from our spouses, but to delight in it as a good gift that strengthens our marriages it's it's a a powerful means uh, that God himself uses to teach us how he loves us so to refrain from from sex within marriage uh, can be defiling to the marriage bed because it's not what god has called us to do right Uh, but also to use this gift outside of the covenant of marriage for which he designed it either of those is to profane what god has called sacred to treat lightly what god has called holy set apart it's, it's to corrupt and to stain that beautiful picture that God has made for us of his love for his people. And we would be foolish to think that this would have no effect on our marriages or honestly on all of our relationships because our very lens for viewing what love is, which comes from God, our, 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 that, that lens would be corrupted itself, right? Our, our understanding of what love is because our picture Is messed up and if you're feeling convicted by this now that's a good thing that's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart if you're feeling like the only one convicted right now that's not a good thing that's a lie and that's Satan speaking the reality is uh, this is a great gift and so it is greatly tempting to us either to use it in inappropriate and selfish ways or to scorn it and call evil what God has called good in its proper context. And you know, we all mess up when it comes to marriage and when it comes to sex. If you think you haven't, you're either, too, uh, you're, you're either so young that you don't fully know what I'm talking about, which is not a bad thing, uh, or you're unaware of your own heart. Like, those are basically the options you have. But the good news of the gospel, again, is that Jesus didn't come for perfectly pure and undefiled people, he came and he called the prostitutes and the adulterers and even the Pharisees. Right? If God saved and even used polygamists in His kingdom, then He can welcome you too uh, with open arms. Right? And He can welcome me as well. You uh, you know we know, for example, that Jesus spoke out very very firmly against divorce but when he met the Samaritan woman at the well who had already been through five husbands and was currently living with another man who was not her husband did he just condemn her to hell like what 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 did he do He, he, he welcomed her in with the gospel right he called out her sin but he didn't condemn her for it instead he called her to something better To a life of following him and knowing the blessing, not just of the picture of God's love that we have in marriage, but the real thing, the real deal. And Jesus invites you as well to a life of following him in love, to experience those blessings as well, to know the truth of his word, that it is more blessed, as he says, to give than to receive. He calls us this morning to offer acceptable worship to him, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day, in every aspect of our lives, in our homes, in our things, in our thoughts, in our relationships, in our finances, in all the nitty-gritty details of life that affect us every day. He calls us to follow him and to worship him in these things, not just because he's worthy of it as our creator and uh, ruler of all and as our redeemer and our savior, but because by following him uh, with our relationships and our bank accounts, with our spare rooms and our spare change, with our food and our friends and everything we are and everything we do and everything we have every day, that's also the road Jesus promises us, on which actually lies the greatest blessing to us, because it's the path of Jesus, and in his arms are treasures forevermore. Because as he tells us, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Or as we read here in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man do to me? Are you afraid of what it might mean if you open up your house for a stranger to stay there? The Lord is your helper. What can man do to you? Are you afraid that if you give away too much of your money or of your things, you won't have enough left over? The Lord is your helper. Do not fear. Are you afraid that if you don't Take uh, sex into your own hands, or if you or if you don't follow your own plan for marriage, that God won't provide for you. He has said, "I will never leave you; I will never forsake you." So we can confidently say, "The Lord is my helper; right? I will not fear. What can man do to me? God can provide manna in the desert and water from a dry rock." He can provide a healthy marriage even for you. Now, he may not, right? He may not, but he will still be your helper. He himself will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you have the reality of God's love, well, that's even better than the picture of it that he gives us in marriage. You have the fulfillment, the substance the real deal. Verse 5, commands us to keep our lives free from the love of money. Jesus said the same thing. We cannot serve both God and money, right? That's true of anything. Money is is, uh, the most common temptation, but we, we can't serve both God and sex. We can't serve both God and the respect of others. We can't serve both God and anything. Instead, the antidote that he provides is to be content with what we have. Four. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. See, if we have Jesus, if we have Jesus plus everything in the world, everything else you could imagine in all of the universe, in the entire cosmos, we have nothing more, nothing more than the person who has Jesus and nothing else. If we have Jesus, we have everything we need, so we can find contentment only in him. Nothing else will satisfy, but we can find it in him. All those other blessings, you know, they're great. We, obviously, we need food, we need shelter, we need all kinds of things to live, and if we have more, Uh, You know, if we're more comfortable, we can focus on other things that we can enjoy. Uh, We can even, you know, focus on things like education, uh, relationship building that can help us into the future. But even if God should take away all of our earthly comforts by his grace, even then we can learn to say with the Apostle Paul that I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I don't know about you, I'm not there yet, but working on it, right? Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, he says, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And brothers and sisters, that's where our hope lies this morning, with him who strengthens us to be able to follow him to be able to offer acceptable worship in every part of our lives to be able to love each other and strangers with all that we have uh, our hope lies with him who will never leave us with him who will never forsake us so we can confidently say through uh, <coughs> through his word though this calling seems too great for us, too great certainly for me, we can still say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me again? Let's, let's pray and, and thank him for this truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our helper, that no matter what, we can have confidence that you will never leave us and that you will never forsake any of your children anyone who has put their faith in you for life and for eternity help us our helper to follow you in love to worship you with every part of our lives to show sacrificial love as you did both to our brothers and sisters in christ as well as to strangers and criminals and the least of these it would remind us that we too we're strangers to your grace, that we too were criminals, rebels against your law. And be thankful for your salvation. Lord, may the world truly know that we are yours by the love that we share, a love that can only come from you and help us always to know how great your love is for your brothers and sisters, no matter what that your love for us would strengthen and empower us to show the radically generous love that you call us to share with others. For we ask it all in your name as your own beloved sisters and brothers. Amen. Amen.